This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Dan Elmeter. He is a longtime member of the Alleluia community. Hi, Dan. We're glad to have you joining us today. Thanks for inviting me to be on here today. So, uh, Dan, uh, since you're part of the Alleluia community, could you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, What are the origins of the community? Okay, we were uh, formed back in 1973. Uh, The origin would be uh, a move of the Holy Spirit around the world that formed intentional charismatic covenant communities that came out of the Catholic charismatic renewal. So we're one of hundreds and hundreds of communities that kind of began to take birth around that time. They, they kind of emerged out of prayer groups and uh, people wanted something more, more commitment, more intentional. So out of uh, large prayer groups, uh, core groups started meeting uh, on different nights, seeking how to live life together in Christian community. And, and that was the case in our community. We had a prayer group of about 300 people and about 60 people began to meet on a different night. And out of that, uh, 12 of the 60 uh, felt like they wanted to commit their lives to living intentional Christian community. And so they made what they call a covenant, which is a, a solemn promise uh, to God and to one another to live life together in Christian community. And where was this uh, located? This is in uh, Augusta, Georgia. Uh, and uh, the interesting fact about our community is that we're in a, <clears throat> we're a, our population of Georgia Catholics is 3%. Uh, and yet the, uh, the founders of our community, they were all Catholic, including uh, one of them was a priest. And so, uh, but very, I think based especially upon our demographics and this where we live, uh, the, the Lord seemed to speak quickly to the leadership and said that, that we, should, we should be an ecumenical community open to other faiths. So we opened the doors at that point and we're, we're an ecumenical community now with about 700 men, women, and children, um, about almost 90% Catholic. We have about 10% of our population are Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, Messianic, Jewish, Orthodox, but mostly, most of us are Roman Catholic. And when you said, you know, you said that there was that initial uh, prayer group of about 300 people, um, and then, you know, I could, uh, only about 12 of them were interested in making this step towards more commitment. I, without that kind of initial, um, process of you know having this big broad net of people who are widely interested in the same sort of thing do you think it would have been possible to find the 12 people who are willing to take that initial commitment how essential was that wider uh group to start with well that was just an historical way we formed i think if we were to start one intentionally now which we've we've attempted to do um you have to kind of throw a, a broad net to see who, first of all, has any interest at all. Like we, we've gone into other parts of our, our diocese and other cities and, and spoken at parishes and 
and, and it's it's kind of the same thing. We we start with about maybe sixty to eighty people from a from a city who are who want to hear more, and it kind of whittles down to you know a, a pretty much a, a group of ten to twenty people that are really serious about wanting to form a community. Yeah, that's uh, interesting to me because you know I've talked to people about forming community, and it often seems that it can be difficult to get that initial. Um, you know, get, get people to commit to get something started and um, having some sort of more, so, something that's less uh, intentional and less committed at first to allow people to come together and find one another. Sounds like it might be a good starting approach. Yeah, I, th- I think just building relationships and friendships, um, you know, with like-minded people um, is, is the way to go. You know, if, if, if you're in a for even if you're in a parish or whatever, um, if you can find even one or two other families who, who who just let's say want to have a meal together every week, <laughs> starting out as simple as that is a great way to start uh, forming something that's a little bit more intentional and and uh, has more more commitment to it than you would see in a certainly see in an everyday parish. Right. And then you mentioned the ecumenical focus, and that's something that interests me. Uh, what strengths and challenges has that brought to the community? How has that uh, been? Well, it's uh, we're, we're <laughs> the fact that we're still here and doing it is amazing um, because uh, it, it, it's not easy uh, because we step on each other's toes all the time. I think we've made every mistake you can make in terms of offending one another uh that's the that's the downside the the upside is the uh incredible enrichment that we get from each other's faith um this you know i would say that uh traditionally for example catholics are more liturgical sacramental oriented but we have a we have a really incredible blend of evangelical, charismatic, liturgical, and uh, contemplative spirituality that kind of all merges into one here. It's extremely full and rich, and that's the the upside, is that we get to participate in each other's strengths. Right. Can you tell us a little more about the spirituality of the Alleluia community? What are the really distinctive elements about it? Um, well, it's we describe ourselves as a charismatic ecumenical covenant community. So um, certainly charismatic, uh, open to the, all the, all the gifts of the Holy spirit operating on a daily basis in our lives and in ministry and outreach Uh, covenant in that we, we make a life. uh, We have an underway period uh, where we go through very good, solid, rich, uh, formation, every, everything from how to relate to one another to, you know, deep going deeper in prayer to, um, how to, how to correct one another, uh, biblically, uh, how to deal with our emotions. Uh, I mean, spiritual direction, you know, it, it's, it's a two year process people go through. Um, and it's all based on the Bible basically. So it, it's really, everybody can, can buy into it. Um, and then, and, and then after a few years, if, if this is, if you discern, if this is what you want, then you make, you can make a life commitment. So uh, that, and that's for life. I mean, 
most of us here have been here. We have over 300 people who have made a life commitment. And um, it's it's like a modern day religious order, only it's mostly lay people. We, we do have a lot of ordained clergy in our community, uh, both Protestant and Catholic. <laughs> so um, in fact, our, our diocese here is about 10% of the priests here come from our community. But also ecumenical, we, we, we do have a Catholic fellowship with our, uh, that's established with our diocese. So we have a way in which the Catholics themselves have their own vibrant Catholic life on, on when, 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 when just the Catholics gather as one. But most of the time we meet, it's ecumenically. We're meeting with our Protestant brothers and sisters. So our spirituality is very much based around Scripture. And personal prayer is obviously stressed, uh, daily prayer life. We have a rule of life, um, you know, things like family prayer, uh, you know, regular prayer. We don't dictate in any way what kind of prayer life you have. We have some people here who are... um, you know, very contemplative, very uh, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila. I, I put myself in that category. Uh, we have others who are much more evangelical, Bible-based people. Uh, some people who are maybe a little bit more Ignatian in their spirituality, Lexio Divina. Um, so you, you have the gamut of, of all that. So your private, personal spirituality is, is really how you you know, how you see it, but, but as a whole community, um, we're very charismatic. We're, we worship, we're very exuberant in praise, contempt, I would say contemporary praise and worship, um, and using the scriptures all the time, Bible studies. Um, I'm not sure what else to say. <laughs> yeah, that gives, gives a good picture of the group. And, you know, I find the ecumenical aspect very inspiring because, uh, recently been reading uh, Let Us Dream by Pope Francis. And he talks about how to solve, you know, like conflicts and coming to the truth matter. Right. But that sometimes it's necessary, to, as he said, to um, to camp together and wait for the sky to clear. That mm-hmm. if dialogue isn't accompanied by a certain level of unity that already exists, uh, you know, no progress, progress will be made on coming to any kind of agreement or solving any problems that people might have. Right. We, we definitely don't try to resolve the theological issues. Now, we might dialogue about them, try to understand each other, but w- everything we've built on is built on relationship. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the Protestants in our community, uh, I'll be honest, they're as holier, holier than I am. Uh, and I, I'm I'm struck by the fact that they 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 will lay their lives down for the gospel just like I I would and we're we see ourselves working together on the battlefield uh, trying to build the church trying to build the kingdom and um, and quite honestly I, I mean we <laughs> I, I'm a lot closer to the Protestants in my community than I am to a lot of the people I'm in church with on Sunday who who don't have this kind of commitment. You know, so it's it's to me uh, it, it's it's wonderful to to be able to work together, even to evangelize together, uh, which is what we do all the time. So, 
I also am struck by the growth rate of your community, you know, starting with uh, 12 in the early 70s, up to 300 committed members and 700 total members today. That's that's a pretty impressive growth rate. How uh, how fast did it start to grow? Did it uh, really take off right away, or was there a period where it stayed pretty small? Well, it it did take off right away. Um, when I jo- I didn't join, I wasn't here at the very beginning. I came in about four years into it. Uh, when I came, there was about two hundred people. So in just four years, it grew to two hundred. Um, but in 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 fact. At our peak, I think we may have had 900. The initial, I'd say the first 20 years of the community, it was being fed by charismatic prayer groups all around the country. Um, and so people were were joining these communities, coming out of prayer groups that wanted more. Well, what's happened is, is for the most part, these charismatic prayer groups have dried up. So we haven't seen the same level of growth in the last 20 or so years that we had in the first 20 years. Uh, but what is now changing is the culture is changing so drastically um, that we're starting to see an uptick again of families who are looking for some something uh, to, to raise their families in because it's so unstable in the culture. And um, so we're starting to see a lot more visitors a lot more people starting showing interest and in joining the community. Most of our growth in the last 20 years has been multi-generational. Quite a number of our younger children have, have chosen to stay in this life and raise their families here and live the life. I was also wondering um, how, like, how structured is the community? How much of uh, a member's daily life is influenced by the uh, community activities? Um, it, it's, it's quite structured. Um, we have, we have what we call a whole book on our foundational documents that describe the, uh, how we function as a community. We have a leadership, kind of a complementary leadership of, of uh, an, we have an all male leadership, uh, but we have a complementary, uh, women leadership, um, and we're, we are broken down into we call we call them support groups. I guess you could call them cell groups or whatever. The whole community is down, you know, broken into about twenty plus of those groups. So they're the they're the smaller groups that we relate in, um, where we get our quote primary support from. Uh, we meet weekly usually, in some form. Might be prayer. Might be uh, might be a fun activity. It might be a picnic. It, but involves the children. And then we have a, a weekly prayer meeting of some kind. They, the, the prayer meetings vary. Sometimes we have a, what we call a quiet prayer meeting. They're more contemplative. Or sometimes with just full-blown praise and worship. Um, sometimes we'll have a men's prayer meeting or women's prayer meeting. Um, so we do have uh, both a, a, a large structure in which we, we all come together to worship the Lord. And then we have the small groups where we live kind of live out our daily life in those small groups and where we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and first communions and baptisms and you name it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, we, we just, we just celebrated Pentecost here two days, three days ago and our Bishop came and um, it was a wonderful time. We had 
you know, we just had a huge picnic when he came after mass. We had a big mass, had picnic, and he met with all our Protestant leaders and had a wonderful ecumenical fellowship there. Um, it's it's the the other thing I need to tell you about our community is is we're we live most of us live in the same neighborhood, so this makes it much easier to live community. Yeah, I was wondering about that, you know, because obviously geographic proximity makes everything work a lot better. Yeah, so when the community was birthed, um, they wanted to move together, and they started looking for buildings. And then this property, it was very run-down, worst part of the city type of property. (laughs) But it was a group of apartments, and um, the price was right. So the, 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 the initial families that started the community sold everything and bought this property and basically moved into it, they became landlords instantly because there was a lot of people in these apartments. And they spent their time, the first uh, 15, 20 years of community was building this neighborhood up um, from from what, what I would call a red light <laughs> drug district to, to it's an incredible transformation of, of and, and it's not just us, we've had an impact on surrounding neighborhoods as well. So. We, we probably own about a one or two square miles of homes and it's in a cheap, it's in a, because it's in a rough neighborhood, the homes are very affordable and it enables young families, anybody to live here. So we have everything from doctors and lawyers to, to people who can barely make a living all living in the same neighborhood together. That's really incredible actually. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've been, uh, you know, thinking about, about how one would start to build that kind of geographic proximity and make it, uh, you know, how, how did it go initially? Uh, you say that the, the group owns, does the group own these buildings collectively or are they privately owned by members? Well, again, we, invo- we evolved. So when the community formed, they made the decision that they, we would be an X2 community. We put everything in common. Uh, well, that worked for, 10 years, but we, we grew, <laughs> it became un, unreal, un, unwieldy. We couldn't manage that kind of a thing with that many people. So we went, and so when we bought the, the community, we, the community owned it, but nobody owned their own homes. Um, so after 10 years, we realized that this wasn't, um, one of the things that it violated was subsidiarity. Um, you know, a, a dad couldn't decide. I mean, we were we were pretty poor. I can tell you that. <laughs> I, I didn't have much. That there was my my spending allowance. I think a month was five dollars back then. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh huh. But literally, uh, and but you know, it came down to a dad who needed to buy his kid a pair of shoes. Well, you'd have to go to the community administration to find out which family was the most needy. And, and somehow that took away the, 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 the authority of the dad to make those kinds of decisions. And mm-hmm. we, we realized right. that if we were going to be a family, we couldn't be, a re, we couldn't be like a religious order. We had to support family life. And so we, we stopped that system. And what we, we now do is that families who are life committed, they actually do contribute 10% of their gross income every month to the community. Uh, as a way to support all the things that we do, outreach and support full-time staff in the community. We have a lot of, we have a lot of pastoral care. People are, 
they come in here broken. <laughs> we all do. We're still broken, but uh, there's so much healing that happens through community life, and we 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 take care, pastoral care very seriously. Everybody has somebody that they they have mentoring them, or have have accountability to. Um, anyway, that's how we're we're currently functioning. We have a school too, a, a K through twelve school. So we, in addition to the ten percent that we give to the community for for all our outreaches and our functioning, uh, we also give ten six percent toward the the running of the school. So that everybody who's who has children puts their kids in the school and um, and it's a very, very successful school. We've had it now for 30, oh, almost 40 years. That's interesting when you're talking about about the the tension between being really, you know, intentional, pooling all one's resources and the problem with families that the parents have to have a certain amount of authority, because as I've been interviewing communities, uh, this is something I've come up with over and over. I know one community I interviewed, they made the decision that they weren't going to have families as full members so that they could maintain, you know, that having everything in common. And other communities have made the decision to be somewhat less intentional so that they can welcome uh, families with children. Um, and it, it does seem that there's, uh, you know, some kind of, I think the only the only community I've heard of so far that managed to really share everything in common and have families involved is the Bruderhof uh, communities. Mm -hmm. Everyone else seems to have uh, split down one or the other of those paths, more like a community with families or more like a monastery uh, without. And the Bruderhof, of course, they have their, they self-sustain themselves with their, you know, their work. We here, we're, we live in the world, so to speak. Um, we, you know, people have regular secular jobs. Um, and so, um, I don't know if that would work for us, you know, the, the way it, it, it works for the Bruderhof, you know? Right. Yeah. So, uh, you said you joined the community about four years after it started. Uh, you know, what is your background? What really attracted you to this community? Well, that, that's an, uh, uh, amazing story in itself because, uh, I was in seminary. Uh, I was actually sent to this city to to work in a, a mental health hospital as part of my training for a summer. They call it CPE, clinical pastoral education. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew of the community. I was involved in charismatic renewal, so I had heard of it. And so I asked if I could live with them for the summer while I did my internship in the hospital. And they said, sure, come on. And uh, I immediately oh, was extremely attracted to the life. <laughs> Uh, I can now I was in the seminary in the in the turbulent years of the 70s, 80s, the, the pre JP2 years, I call them. Um, and it was pretty crazy. Um, and so I had I felt like God was calling me to be a priest. But and, and, and then I was in a, a, a terrible struggle. OK, I was called to this community and what and I wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. And in the process of discerning. I was in my seventh year of seminary. I was getting very close to having to make the decision about deaconate. I, I was on a timeline uh, and I was under the gun. And so I was torn up and uh, I was at mass one day at, at the seminary. And uh, literally as I was taking the Eucharist, 
I heard the Lord speak to me audibly. And I don't mean just in, it was audible. <laughs> I had to look around to see if anybody else heard it. But he said to me, the choice is yours. Those was his first words, which I would never have thought to say. Uh-huh. And then he said, but you will do more to build my church if you go to Alleluia than if you stay here to become a priest. Those were his exact words to me. And I, I almost collapsed right there. I mean, I, I got back to my pew and, and wept and wept because it was my answer. I, I, I didn't want to disobey God if you wanted me to be a priest. Mm-hmm. And, and at right. that time, in the early stages of community life, there really wasn't time to be a priest. <laughs> it was give it all. It was like we weren't sending people to seminary at that point. We didn't get into that till probably almost, you know, almost 20 years into our life where we were really stable. Mm-hmm. And then we started sending men off, you know, to, to, to seminary. So, um, so that was my answer. And I left the next day <laughs> and never looked back. And I, I can assure you that I, I can't even begin to tell you the fruit that's come from my decision. I mean, we've, a number of families uh, that uh, I was responsible for helping to join the community out of them, a lot of them, we have a lot of vocations uh, Mm -hmm. that came from them. And then I've, I'm serving the church in so many other ways that are ways I'd never dreamed I would be serving the church. Those are all other stories for another time. But uh, you know, I've been, I'm involved with, you know, committees in the Vatican and, you name it. I'm, I'm a, I've been all over the world and met all kinds of people involved in all kinds of leadership positions in the church. So, um, so the Lord definitely had a plan for my life, and um, and part of it was to, to to bring me here. I one thing about the seminary formation, I had I had that formation, and 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 I became I got tapped to help form our community formation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I've been involved in the formation of our community life for over 40 years now. And um, that's been really very, very fruitful for our community. That's an amazing, uh, you know, vocational story. It's always amazing hearing that the twists and turns on someone's path, you know, following the Lord. Yeah. So he gave me a wife here. We married here and I have six children and uh, 19 grandchildren now. And uh I expect I'll see a few priests out of some of them. <laughs> some of my nieces and nephews, some of my own family members have followed me here and, and I have a, a two, two nephews now who are priests and, and a sister who's a Carmelite. Uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, a niece who's a Carmelite. So just in my own family uh, that, that came out of our community life, mm-hmm. some of the right. fruit. Can you tell us a little, you know, you mentioned some of the outreach that the community does and that you've been involved in. Can you tell us a little more about how the community reaches out to the surrounding church and world? Sure. Um, well, locally, um, it's like we, people will ask us, what's your charism or what's your ministry? And, and quite honestly, we don't have one ministry. I mean, mm-hmm, it's, right. it's mostly members of the community that's, that have a vision for something. And very often then the community will get around and support it. For example, um, one of the men that joined our community early on, he, he had a vision to, f- to start a food bank. Um, well, that 
in, in a number of our people ended up working for that food bank. And that food bank is still thriving today. It's, it's, it's incredible. It serves half our state and part of another state. And, um, and, and we've, out of that, we started a citywide soup kitchen um, mm-hmm. that meant out of the food bank and, and numbers and all the churches in the city participate in that. Um, that feed, you know, every day about three to 400 people. Um, and, um, that's just an example of how a ministry might flourish. We have, we do have a spiritual direction school here that we started a number of years ago and that's flourishing, um, to the point where we can't, you know, we have waiting lists now people, but we have, you know, it's a three year, uh, training program and, uh, we have, uh, like, July, uh, we have one of our th- uh, three-year sessions. We have eight priests signed up for that, along with a, mostly lay people. But um, and that's that's we're getting people from all over the country coming to that. Um, the unity work that we're doing is is uh, all the way up, like I say, all the way up to the Vatican. Even the you know Pope Francis is well aware of what we're doing here. Myself and uh, another gentleman here who's actually the leader, uh, we call him the overall coordinator of our community. He's Protestant. <laughs> he's a Protestant leading mostly Catholics, and uh, he's in a vineyard church. And he, he and I represent, uh, we're part of a committee at the, uh, that meets in Rome every two years, dialogue between what we call the new charismatic churches and the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And these are what we're formerly be called non-denominational churches, but they're, they're growing like rabbits and, and they're having a huge impact. And the Vatican is very interested in, um, in this. And so we, we're, we both represent uh, the community on that and actually speak at numbers of international uh, conferences and national conferences on, on unity. Um, That's one of our, we have other ministries like, you know, prison. We have a number of guys that are involved in prison ministry, something called Kairos. Um, we do, we certainly do outreach uh, in parishes, put on, you know, we're, wherever we can serve, we try to serve um, parishes with renewal. We have people who, you know, again, people who are on different, have a lot of ministries, like we have one of our members who's on a, uh, Catholic TV network that she has a regular show on. And um, we put on retreats. Um, we do a lot of, we try to do a lot of evangelism. Uh, we do street evangelism sometimes. Um, I don't know. I, I, I could go on and on with really, there's so many, it, they're so, they're very diverse and it's dependent on the people themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So people can take the initiative and start what start what they see there to be a need to be done. And I, I find that really inspiring because I like to try to stress the, um, you know, when, on these interviews, I like to try and stress that outreach and community are complementary rather than opposed, you know, that it doesn't have to be a decision between looking inward to build up a strong community and looking outward to spread a me- spread a message to the world. Right. We, we, we would agree with that. And, you know, we would say, I would say that we would also say that 
without a deep prayer life, all the ministry is going to bear that much fruit. <laughs> uh, everything comes out of prayer. And so we really stress prayer here. Um, and, um, and, and we see that the people who are the, who are the, the contemplatives in our community life are the ones who are the most productive, quite honestly. The, the fruit in their lives are, is just incredible how much they serve and can do. I know, uh, speaking of spiritual direction, I know you mentioned that Father Thomas Dubay was a big influence on you. Can you tell me a little more about that? I mean, I've named my website, uh, Happy Are You Poor, after his uh, famous book by the same name. Um, <laughs> so I'd be really interested to hear more about him. Well, he, it's interesting. He came, uh, one of his visits here, he um, he did a whole retreat for the community called Happy Are You Poor. <laughs> so uh, he, had, he had quite an influence on us um, as, as a whole community, really, um, because in 73, he wrote one of his first books. It was called Caring, a Biblical Perspective on Community, and our founders actually read that book, um, and it, it is literally a blueprint for the way we live our life here, what, what he wrote in that book. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But... Uh, nobody, nobody here knew him personally. I, uh, in my prayer journey, I, I discovered contemplative prayer and, uh, somebody had given me his book, um, fire within. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when I first looked at it and opened it, I, I got to about the third chapter, closed it, put it back on my bookshelf where it sat there for a few more years. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't understand what he was talking about. But then when, when God started moving in my heart and I began to experience contemplative prayer, I pulled the book out again and started reading it. And it was like, a, for me, it was a gold mine. And so I was so excited by everything he wrote that I, I, I wrote him a letter, but I didn't know where to send it. So I, I knew I'd seen him on EWTN. I sent it to EWTN and they forwarded it to him. And about a month later, I got a, a letter back from him. If you knew anything about him, he didn't use computers. Uh, he didn't. He only wrote hand correspondence or a typewriter. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, I uh, anyway, out of that, he he really affirmed everything I was experiencing in my prayer life, and I and I and I, I didn't think he would ever say yes, but I just said I wrote him back and I said, "Would you be willing to be my spiritual director?" And he said yes. So. Um, that started a relationship with him that lasted till he, he died, um, I think eight years. Um, and I, I would attend his retreats and then um, invited him to community uh, to, to, to speak to us. And, um, and then I have a whole stack of correspondence back and forth. From, that's how we, either through telephone or through meeting him at retreats or through correspondence, he, he, he you know, gave me a lot of wonderful direction um and I, I know he's not canonized and all that but i do pray to him <laughs> because uh he was the real deal um if you knew him he was so childlike um he was extremely brilliant but he acted like a child i mean he was very simple he would laugh at the simplest little things and get tickled at himself and um you know his his priestly garb and it was threadbare i mean it was like he only had one like one set of clothes almost and 
I remember one time at, in my home when he was having dinner and we were serving dessert. I think it was peach pie or something. Good old Southern meal. And, uh, and he, he took a, he took some peach pie and we offered him a second and he said, Oh no, <laughs> one is, is, is out of charity. The second one is for the, uh, would, <laughs> or the first one would be for the glory of God. He said, the second one would be just to feed my flesh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just got so tickled by that um, uh-huh. response. I mean, but he was genuine. I mean, he was serious. He would. He was. He lived very simply, and um, everything he wrote. You know, he wrote that book on authenticity. Well, he was the authentic priest, uh, real man of God, and I, I feel like my whole spiritual life got grounded uh, through him, and out of what. He, out of that relationship, I started with his encouragement, what we call fire, uh, fire within book study groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, I think I had at least 50 people in my living room studying every week. We, this went on for many, many years. And, and that, that was a, a, a grace, uh, a grace of uh, contemplative prayer began to fall on our, a lot of members of our community through that just deepened our whole prayer life. And so we attribute, you know, I, I, we owe him a lot, <laughs> Father Father Dubay, uh, for, for the influence he had on our life. Yeah, that's amazing. I know when I read Happy Are You Poor, I mean, it had to have been one of the most challenging things I'd ever read. But what I liked about it was that, yeah, as you said, you know, like it was the real deal. It was like, this was the gospel message. And he was, he was clear about, you know, like either you, you know, like he laid it all out step by step. There was no getting around anything. You know, like you said, it was all, all there. And then you just had to decide whether you were going to accept it or not. You know, it wasn't, wasn't (laughs) a matter of agreeing or not. (laughs) (laughs) You really couldn't, you can't argue with him because everything he, he did was based on script. It was all scriptural, Mm -hmm. which was interesting because a lot of our Protestants were able to really listen in and benefit from him because everything he did and said was based on scripture. So it, he, he really was a gift to us and, and including, well, one of our rules of life, we, we have about, I don't, we, it's, it's not like it's a, a legalism, but it, we have a rule of life. We try to live. And one of them is to live a simple lifestyle. So, um, you know, and, and we don't try to definitely define that for each other because what, what might be simple for one person may not be for another and vice versa. But, um, but I, I will say that nobody here lives an opulent lifestyle. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, fairly, a fairly simple lifestyle. It's, it's not poverty by any means. Um, but be, because, again, we're, um, we have a lot of children here. And it's, you know, it's in every family practices it differently, but it, it's just to move into this neighborhood takes a commitment. Let's put it that way. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> most people who are in our neighborhood are there very intentionally because most people wouldn't be living in this neighborhood. They'd be living somewhere in the suburbs, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a great thing about his book, too, uh, that you know, when he's laying out that gospel poverty is a requirement for all, but that, you know, it'll look different in each person's life, that it's not one of those things that you can, you know, really lay down the law. And yet at the same time, you can say, well, you know, like certain things 
really don't fit. You know, you can't, uh, you can't just say, well, you know, I've got all this stuff. I'm detached. That's fine. I also, I also liked, um, how he really laid out that the connection between gospel poverty and all the rest of the Christian life, uh, laid, so it doesn't just seem like some kind of extra or ornamental thing that it really has a connection, especially to one's ability to go out and witness that people Mm -hmm. are not going to listen to someone who is not living at least somewhat of a, a simple lifestyle. They're, they're not going to have that credibility of witness that they need. Yes. That's so true. Uh, you know, I, I like, uh, well, it's not a quote from him, but from John Paul II, where he says in one of his encyclicals um, that we're called to, families are called to live a simple and austere lifestyle. And I think that's, that's the model I've, at least personally, I, you know, I raised six kids and it's funny, I just had a conversation with my daughter the other day, one of my daughters, and and uh, she was shocked that she found out a certain family was living from paycheck to paycheck. And I said, well, how do you think we, you were raised? She was shocked. She had no idea. I said, no, we, we, we lived a very simple lifestyle. And I said, you know, for example, Christmas, um, you know, people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on their children at Christmas. And, and we made it, my wife and I made a commitment early on that we would spend uh, $50 per child at Christmas. And, and then when I think after about 20 years, we upped it to $75 <laughs> and to, to go with inflation, but they had no idea that they were deprived, so to speak. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and, and to me, part of, the, part of it was living a simple lifestyle, teaching them how to live that way. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, uh, we grew up living pretty simply. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't realize that, you know, we, we were missing out on, on stuff. We weren't. We had a lot of fun. And, it, you know, it's something you uh, get used to. I know... Um, one of my recent interviews, one of the members was actually saying that children can sometimes adapt to new community settings faster than the adults can because, you know, they don't have an objective like, um, you know, like something something that they're comparing it to. It's like, you know, it just becomes uh, life, you know, it's just normal. So one of the things I love about our community life is if there is a need, which often there is, um, people are so generous I mean, it's, it's just, I think it comes out of the initial living in common, but whenever there's a need, it gets met almost immediately, a financial need, you know, because people just, they, they want to share. They just, they, it's in their heart to do that. I think, you know, one of the things that really bothers me about ordinary modern life is that people are, you know, living side by side with one another but they might never know if uh, a neighbor was in need. The, the neighbor certainly wouldn't tell them. So someone down the street can be, you know, starving or about to be evicted, and you won't know. There isn't enough community to make the sharing of burdens. You know, St. Paul talks about carrying one another's burden, but you can't carry a burden if, you know, you don't share enough life to know what the burdens are. Yeah, well, that that's the advantage of, um, again, part of our we're structured such that if everybody has somebody, like I say, mentoring them um, and, 
and accountable to. So we we are involved in each other's lives. And so if there is a need and, uh, you know, the family can't meet that, the word gets out and, and the need gets met, you know. So we have a, a, a system of making sure that everybody's needs get 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 known if there is one. And that's such a basic uh, part of the gospel, you know, St. James saying, if you say, you know, go in peace, be warmed and fed, and don't do anything. And if a brother or sister is hungry or naked, you know, you don't have the love of God in you. And looking around at, you know, our parish communities, well, it's happening all the time. You know, we might pray together for good things to come to one another. But then, yeah, we don't have that connection that would make it possible to really aid one another. Right. It, it it has to be, to me, to, to live the gospel fully, you have to live a communal life <laughs> I, I, it, at some level, uh, you know, it, it's got to. I mean, um, first of all, how can you grow in holiness if you don't have people to rub up against? I mean, yes, we have our nuclear families, but I think the reason, and I will say this, we have a lot of saints in our community. It's because they've been living this life. <laughs> with one another uh, so closely, um, and it's real. It's not just make-believe. It's real life. Um, if the other thing is, how can you impact a culture by yourself? You can't. I mean, you can become a saint, but honestly, I don't know how you can become a saint by yourself. I think you have to have relationships to do that, mm-hmm. close relationships. It's, right. not, it's just not just me and God. But... Um, you know, I, I think I think it was John Paul II that said, you know, faith isn't a mature faith until it impacts the culture. And I don't think just a, a single person or family can impact the culture. I think when, but when you have a group of people who are living the gospel, it can have, it does impact the culture. Mm-hmm. I really love that quote by John Paul II about how a faith that isn't, you know, going out and making a uh, change in the way of life in a whole culture is not yet fully faith because obviously if if we really believe in the gospel then we would let it into every area of our lives there wouldn't be anything in our lives that's you know walled off with a watertight compartment from the gospel but you're right you know as an individual we can't affect that cultural change it just doesn't happen uh, one thing i'd like to get your perspective on you know, you've mentioned the you know leadership and accountability um, and this seems to be an issue that communities have to really struggle with, as, especially as they're newly forming, how to properly relate to authority in a community. Um, can, you, can you give any insights on how, how that should look in a community setting? And also, especially how a new community just starting out, um, you know, like there, there is no tradition of leadership, how they can develop a healthy leadership structure when they're, when they're getting going. Um, well, I, I would, first of all, you can only lead what you have authority to lead. So, um, we have, uh, we have a covenant, we have, uh, like I say, uh, we have certain agreements that we've all agreed to that doesn't cover everything. So in other words, we don't try to tell a family per se, how to raise their children. Now we do have parenting Part of our formation is parenting, but um, we don't have the authority to go in and tell a dad or a mom 
you know, no, you shouldn't put your kid in that soccer league because, you know, what XXX, that, that's really overreach and overkill. But we do have basic agreements of how we're going to live our life together in community. For example, regular attendance at meetings or that you do have somebody that you're accountable to or that you do have a financial responsibility to the community. Um, these are all things that you, over a period of time, have discerned and agreed to in good conscience, <laughs> just like making a promise or a vow, you know. And so, uh, so in a sense, the community leadership has the authority to call people to live those agreements. If you're slacking, <laughs> they have the authority to do that. Um, now, we we see authority as a servant leadership. So we, we kind of put it as 80% of the leadership in authority in the community is servant leadership where we're caring for one another, making sure that everybody is loved and cared for. And that's where we spend most of our focus as leaders. The 20% is for people who, you know, is just calling people to, to live out what they've said they're going to live out. So I think it's important that the that the the leaders be people who have a heart a shepherd's heart you know who really love and care for their people mm -hmm. and that's the number one thing they kind of look at uh the men who are the leaders uh as fathers of the of the community and um we have a we do have a, a an agreement that when you're 75 you have to step down in that role but when you're elected to it um it's unlike the kind of current modern day where you're kind of on, you're, you serve for three years or you serve for six years and then you rotate the leadership. We don't rotate fatherhood. <laughs> and uh -huh. uh, so we see we don't see good fruit from that. Uh, and then when and then the whole community selects the next, you know, when there's a vacancy, we mm -hmm. select uh, the next leader. And, and most of the I can tell you, most people are. They, they select the leaders based on that kind of shepherding uh, model of servant leadership. That's who they're going to pick. And so you said that there's like a um, committee, so like there's like a number of people sharing leadership duties at any one uh, point in time? Um, we started with the term elder. Uh, we still keep it for the, the, the main leadership group of the community. There's seven active elders at any given time. And they're the ones that make um, the final decisions. Now we have a complementary group of women, we call them women coordinators, and they meet with the, the elders regularly and, and we interchange inputs and things like that. Um, but we also have uh, other echelons of pastoral care, support group, cell group leaders and that kind of thing. And then we have, I would guess we probably have 40 <laughs> service teams of varying natures. It could be anything from, you know, we have a, uh, we call an in-reach team that serves meals to the elderly that can't get out to um, financial stuff, to um, formation teams, to all kinds of pastoral care groups in the community, outreach, all kinds of outreach teams that have various ministries. Um, so, and, and so all those people are, 
they're they're all leaders, but they're all they're not they're not the necessarily the community leaders, so to speak. We support them in their leadership roles, and we uh-huh. a lot of them we, we we well we put them in those positions of leadership. We kind of mm-hmm. discern where their gifts are, and then try to put them in those kinds of positions where where their gifts are going to flourish. Uh huh. Right. Yeah, and then you know you've talked a lot about how your community has a good working relationship with the local uh, religious community, the local Christian communities in the area. Um, yeah, that works good because um, we're not a church. Um, we don't try to compete with the church, the parish. You know, mm-hmm. um, this is difficult for a lot of Protestants because what what. To them, we look like a church, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, but uh, we're definitely not. And we, one of our agreements is that you have to be a member of good standing with your local congregation. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to all that we do in the community, we serve our parishes and our our um, our congregations. We're, in fact, we're very very much serve them. Do we do a lot? Do, uh, do most of the Catholic members of the community end up at uh, one or two local parishes uh, there? Well, I would say the 75% of the community live in this geographic neighborhood. Um, we have, we only have four Catholic parishes in our city. So we have members in all of them. Um, we do have other clusters of families in other parts of the city. We have a rural cluster. We call it the farm branch. They have several acres and they, they do grow food <laughs> out there and bring it in for distribution and sell it mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, and they, they have their own uh, parish out there. They're about 25 miles out. Um, but yeah, we all are members of different parishes. My parish, the, the pastor is grew up in the community. He's, <laughs> he's a, He's a lifetime member, so that's kind of neat to have him as our pastor. Uh-huh. Um, and we, we, you know, we're like I say, we're involved in our churches. We, we, we have a regular, very good relationship with all the bishops we've had so far, and we have a new one. We just we have an excellent relationship with him as well. They they see us as a real powerhouse of. I think for the diocese here, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously, obviously, if we're producing the, I mean, our little tiny school of K through twelve, which is an ecumenical school, it's not a Catholic school. We don't teach Catholic teaching. We don't teach Catholic faith in the school itself. I mean, we teach Bible and we teach that. Um, but out of our school, our ecumenical school, again, we've probably had at least fifteen priests come out of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the local Catholic high school in our city has probably produced one or two in that period of time, <laughs> so there's something going on here, right? Yeah, that the bishops are interested in. Yeah, I guess the reason I'm I'm interested in this question of relating to the local parish is because I've seen cases where community Catholic community, particularly, I think, can become yeah, kind of a um, at odds with the parish or diocesan structure kind of see themselves as a parallel church and then kind of set up this tension between the uh, normal Catholics at the parish and the 
special Catholics at the community, uh, which can be it can get really ugly, and it, it can warp both the community and the diocese and parish. I I, I agree a hundred percent. I I think the first half of our year, tw- first twenty five years, that tension was very strong and very real. Um, I don't know what changed it, but maybe just being here for this long, uh, people have finally come to a point of um, some sort of acceptance that we're not here to, to compete with you. We're here to serve you. And um, it, it, it's no long, I don't see it as an, an issue anymore. I would say though, if we were, this is why I think most of these communities uh, form outside of parish structure because, um, because it does create an automatic tension. People mm-hmm. look at you as, who do you think you are? You're better than we are. And then the other side of it is, if it's at a parish structure, then it's dependent on father. And uh, father changes in every few years, mm-hmm. and you right. have to start all over again. And so almost all these communities, when they were formed around the world, are, are all outside of the parish. And we were instructed by the, at the time, it was Bishop Cor- Bishop Cordes, um, he was the, or he's now Cardinal Cortez, he's retired, but he was the John Paul's guy that we became part of an association that under the Vatican, a private association of communities. And, um, and he told us clearly that our charism do not allow the parish to swallow up your charism, meaning don't, don't just go in and do whatever father says. <laughs> You have your own charism to offer to the church, and so be careful not to, to kind of come under the thumb of of the local pastor. Um, now that said, we we serve our parishes. I mean, we're probably the most active members in all the parishes mm-hmm. in our city, um, because everybody here takes their church commitment very seriously. I think one of the you know. Just just looking at this, you know, you were saying that you're not a church, that you all belong to your own Catholic or Protestant congregations. And um, uh, just thinking about this, that seems like a good thing because, you know, community is so tight that if if you are also worshiping uh, more or less exclusively among yourselves, you wouldn't probably be able to have uh, a good influence on the wider church. You would become just a separate Entity, but because you still are worshiping with your fellow Catholics, or they're worshiping right. with their fellow Protestants, uh, that bond isn't as um, totally cut there. That it's true, and and we have an influence on the the local pastors. We have a regular meeting every month with a lot of the local pastors of the churches, and uh, we host it. We we do a luncheon for them, and that's their favorite meeting of the month, I think. And uh, one of the reasons we can do that is we're not a threat because we're not we're not taking anybody out of their church. Um, you know, we're we're actually giving them uh, members who are producing in their churches. They don't and they don't see us as trying to sheep steal, as you you might uh-huh. say, right? Because right. that's not we're not a church, so we we're not stealing anybody, <laughs> right? Um, as we. Uh come to the end of our time here, what would be some closing practical uh, pieces of advice that you give to Christians who are trying to find or build more intentional community? Well, I I think um, 
certainly don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are a lot of good, strong communities out there if you look for them. And it would be really good to find out what they're doing because you don't want to make all the mistakes we made. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, we're a miracle that we still exist because, like I said at the beginning, all the mistakes we made at the beginning, we shouldn't be here. But by the grace of God, he really obviously wants us here. And, um, and so we've learned a lot. And, and, and so I would say seek out the wisdom of mature communities that are out there and find out how they do it. And, and then I think back to finding people with like-minded vision. Uh, this is one of the strongest things Father Dubay talked about in his book on, on building community. Uh, I think it was like one of his first chapters is without a, a vision, people perish. And if you don't have a common vision, you're going to have mismatched expectations almost immediately. So it is important to find people to begin to relate to them. Who ha- and you have to find out if they have the same vision you have. Otherwise, you're going to eventually part ways, and then that's painful. So making clear what the vision is that you expect and want and are striving for and giving people the opportunity to either say, yes, that's what I want too, or no, I don't want that, and say, that's fine. You go where God wants you, but, but this common vision thing is really important. And, and, and as a community, we continually talk about our, the vision of our community life so that people can keep that common vision and not get you know, distracted. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. And you know, thanks for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. It's great. Thank you for the opportunity to share our life. And hey, anybody is welcome to come on out and visit us. You're welcome. We love to have visitors. That's one of our ministries, hospitality. We, we house people day and night over here. Yeah, that sounds great. That would be a lot of fun. So thanks again and have a great day. Thank you.